This morning's scripture reading is from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result... It has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, And I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life Or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we... Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you desire to lead us, to guide us, to reveal yourself to us. And I pray, Father, that you would speak to us today, Lord. Use this time. In the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was with Jews for Jesus some years ago, I was invited by the little Christian group on campus there. There was one of about 15 people on a campus which, you know, is about 60% Jewish, and they wanted to have an outreach uh, with the title, you know, Can a Jewish Person Believe in Jesus? And uh, they ambitiously, they invited me to come and speak at that, and they ambitiously got a room of 70 seats. And uh, <clears throat> when, I, when I came, uh, there was a giant protest to my speaking there. People are out front, you know, protesting, you go down the hallway or signs, all the way down on the walls, And uh, when I got inside the room, not only were all 70 seats filled, 
but it was packed all along the edges. The entire front area was people sitting down. You had to squeeze past them all. They actually had to put a speaker in the hallway because all the people couldn't even smash in. And, uh, they all, and uh, many of the protesters who were actually seated in there were holding little pieces of paper that said, um, we protest this speaker by refusing to speak during his presentation. I'm like, you know, you, it's like a dream come true. You know, you don't, you don't even think to pray for such things. It didn't even come into my mind. Uh, and so it was, you know, it was amazing. I mean, it was kind of spooky, okay? But, uh, but, you know, it was a great time to be able to share and uh, open up for question and answer. Then I thought, boy, now, now you know, it's going to be pretty intense. And it, it was intense, but not hostile at all. I mean, people are asking questions like, you know, what happens after we die? You know, what do you think happens? And how do you live like this? I mean, it was actually this remarkable time. And, um, and I, I wondered, for many of those folks there, I mean, some of the, you know, the people in the little Christian group were terrified. They're like, we're in the book of Acts, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and it was just so intense for them. And I think most of them would have said, I, I wish this hadn't happened. I wish there hadn't been all these protests. But yet, what happened as a result of all that? The entire campus of Brandeis was, had an opportunity to hear about the gospel, interact with it. Because anyone who wasn't there, by the way, it was in the newspapers for, you know, the, the school papers weekly for any numbers. It was in the whole New England region, the Jewish papers. It was this giant thing. So all these people um, interacted with it. But they only did because of the opposition and protest. You know, um, in Jewish Jesus, the head of Jewish Jesus used to have a saying. He said, um, every knock is a boost. And in Jews for Jesus, we got knocked a lot, as you can imagine, you know, verbally, physically, and uh, other ways. And, um, but then everything always turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And he says, you need to embrace, you know, he, he tried to train people to embrace this. And this was cer- certainly true of Brandeis, because if there hadn't been a bunch of people getting angry at it, probably nobody would have shown up. It probably would have been a, a peaceful, empty room, or a few folks coming. But because of that, it was huge. And I think one of the things in our passage today is that Paul is encouraging the Philippian church to embrace this idea, to see it and understand it. He goes, if you want to really pursue joy, if you want to pursue the joy that God wants to give you, you have to embrace this. You have to embrace the idea that every knock is a boost, that even opposition can work to the furtherance of gospel because God has his hand upon it. But that's a hard one, isn't it? Hard one to endure, a hard one to receive. You know, what, what, how does Paul say that we need to receive it and need to be convinced of what's actually happening? And how does that actually play out in our lives? Because I think in this, he's really not just encouraging the Philippian church to embrace this, he's encouraging us to embrace it. So that's what we're going to talk about today, that pursuit of joy through often difficulties. You know, how does, how does Paul explain it, his current situation to the Philippian church, what does he think, say the real key is to embracing it? And how does that apply in our lives? So the pursuit of joy. So Paul begins this passage by saying, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And what has happened to Paul? Do you remember where he is when he's writing this letter? He is in chains. Right. He is in prison. We don't, you know, traditionally in Rome, it could be in Ephesus, it could be in Caesarea. Because, remember, this was like a regular part of Paul's ministry, right? 
Remember Clement of Rome writing in 96 wrote, Paul also obtained that the reward of patient endurance after being seven times thrown into captivity. This was a bit of a regular hotel stop for him. Now, if you're in the Philippian church, what does it feel like when someone's thrown in prison? I mean, he, and he's got chains on, you know, probably attached to, you know, uh, Roman guards on both sides. The, the assumption is that, oh my gosh, this has been a blow. He is the great apostle. He is going, you know, from city to city, beginning churches, out proclaiming the gospel. And now he's been swooped up and thrown into uh, prison. Boy, this must be a huge blow. And it must be so discouraging to the believers to lose their great father in the faith. But he said it's actually the opposite. It's really served to advance the gospel. And there's a bit of a play on words there because the word for, call it hindrance, and this word for advance are almost the same word in Greek. So he might be like doing a little play on words here a bit. Where you would think it was actually a hindrance, it's actually been the opposite. It's advancement. I'm certainly today we could talk about the advance of the gospel because what letter are we reading? the letter he had time to write while he was in prison. (laughs) And so many of the letters. So we're very grateful for his lasting ministry that happened through prison. So I'm really looking forward to my ministry there one day. (laughs) And I'll be able to get some of that writing done if I wanted to. But you can remind me of that if it happens, please. I would appreciate that. Um, But he says there's a few different things beyond that that he notices. From, that's happened by being in, in, uh, in prison like this. He says, number one, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And the irony here is amazing because essentially when he's in chains there, it's almost, a test, it's almost testifying that Caesar is Lord, right? You think you're out there proclaiming, look who's Lord and locked in here. But Paul is saying, I... <laughs> Jesus is Lord, and in the midst of this letter, he is writing, right? He writes, and every knee shall bow and every tent confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, you may think I'm in here, but you are not in charge. He is Lord. And he goes, and it is now being talked about in the very Roman palace guard. And remember, uh, Philippi is like a mini Rome, right? It's, it was set up as a, as a second Rome way off to the east, and so this, this idea of what's happening actually in Rome's, in uh, Caesar's household is really significant. And would Caesar's household have heard about this? Would they have known that this declaration of Jesus' Lord, this proclamation of the gospel, if Paul was not actually uh, in captivity? Probably not. But he says, now because I'm here, they all know. In fact, every day I at least have two people I can preach to who are chained to me the whole time. <laughs> talking about this, you know, it's a, remar- it's a remarkable situation. And uh, so he goes, number one, actually the gospel's going forth in places we never could have got it el- elsewhere, any other way. Secondly, he said, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and are daring all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He goes, all these people are kind of scared to get up there and declare Jesus as Lord, such in a place like Philippi even. And yet now, because of what's happened to me, they've gotten bolder. Do we know the sensation that happens, right? One person's boldness makes everyone else bold and willing. In the same way that one person's fearfulness makes a whole group afraid. Uh, I, I thought, I couldn't, I remembered a movie I saw years ago on this, which is well known, but I love this scene that uh, describes this. Do I? 
I bring a message from your master, Marcus Licinius Crassus, commander of Italy, by command of his most merciful excellency, your lives are to be spared. Slaves you were, and slaves you remain, but the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! 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 A great truth. I mean, a great scene, but it's a truth we all know that one person's courage in the midst of it led to the courage of so many. And that courageousness of Paul being willing to suffer like that has led, he says, the people are standing up and proclaiming everywhere. Folks who were formerly afraid are speaking. I mean, we saw this in Brandeis as well. You know, the, um, so for weeks after that, there was all this dialogue back and forth in the Brandeis paper. And Christians who were not part of the Christian group there were writing about their faith and why they believe it to be true. And in doing so, kind of outing themselves to their classrooms, making themselves public figures in all of their classes and all their dorms, where formerly they wouldn't have. But it was because of the courageousness of those, that little Christian group that made everyone stand up. So this is one of the amazing things that opposition does. It cre- actually creates courage in people in a remarkable way. And they said, also, there's a strange thing happening as well among these people who are courageous in preaching. He says, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy or rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Very strange. And we don't really have any more information on who these purple people were or why they did it. But I actually think it's less mysterious than we think. And and this, by the way, is not, you know, it doesn't seem to be, you know, there were various heretical groups in the first century, you know, the the circumcision or the Gnostics. These appear to be brothers and sisters in Christ who are proclaiming the gospel. But they're, uh, and what's interesting to, but they're doing it from, you know, almost out of envy and rivalry with Paul. And uh, which is a strange thing, but it's not quite so strange in this letter, especially when you pick up that word um, out of selfish ambition because Paul will use this phrase at the beginning of the next chapter in reference to the people of the church of Philippi. If you remember it said do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit and the idea is um, so that but we think about it, is it really so hard to imagine Christians doing things out of wrong motivations? Honestly, is that really hard? To, uh, people are preaching with wrong hearts, with vain conceit or envy or selfish ambition. Do you mind actually confirm? In the strange ways, as distressing as it may be how Christians often behave in the world, it's not a surprise 
right? Because what's the, what's, the, what's, the, what's the very bottom line of the gospel, right? We're all sinners, and we need Jesus to die on a cross so bad we are. And just because we've come to believe in Jesus, we don't become, oh, saint. Or maybe some of you have. <laughs> I'm waiting anxiously for that day when I shed this body of death and come into his presence. But until then, things like envy, selfish ambition, vain conceit are things that are present in my life. Um, so it's not so hard. But what, what Paul's main point here is that even though people are preaching from wrong um, uh, wrong motives and actually doing out of rivalry and reasons like that, he said the bottom line is, what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. I will take joy. I don't care why they're doing this, that that right now, because I'm in jail and in prison right now, the gospel's going forth in the midst of uh, the Roman prisons and the midst of the palace guard. It's being proclaimed boldly. It's even being proclaimed by people who are doing it from wrong motivation. I rejoice in this, and I will take joy, which is really what his main point is. And, and you think, oh, what is his confidence? How does he have such confidence in the midst of this that this is all happening or going to happen. Because he's going to say this is a principle. It's not just something that happened here. This is a continuing principle that you can accept. And he goes on, and he says, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I have that confidence. And that last phrase there, by the way, will turn out for my deliverance, is the word for salvation. And Philippians uses the word, salvation is a very complex word. What does it mean to be saved? And what is salvation? And actually, we're going to spend a whole week talking about it, because it actually comes up many times in this book. And plus, it's just an important part of theology. There's a whole, whole section of theology called soteriology. I just wanted to say that. Didn't that sound like neat? You know, uh, Just devoted to this, because it is hard to grasp, but for now, think about deliverance in its total, total sense. You know, your deliverance, yeah, you're from the penalty of sins, that this deliverance being from this body of death in which God is transforming us, and that ultimate deliverance when we come to be in his presence. And that is the whole work of God to save us. And he says that God is going to accomplish this great work through this, that God will do his work in me and ultimately take me to be with him. That that will happen and nothing that can happen will thwart that. That's really what his main point is here. That God will accomplish his purposes regardless as if Caesar wants to lock me in jails right there and put chains on me. He cannot stop what God is doing in me and through me. And he mentions two means by which it's done. Is he says, because I know through your prayers. Doesn't that blow your mind? That he's saying that in some way, through your prayers, God is accomplishing his deliverance and salvation in me while I'm in chains. So I'm over here. I'm in chains. I'm locked up. You're way over there. And maybe on your knees and in quiet or maybe together as a group speaking forth these prayers. And that's the means by which God is accomplishing his will over here. But we take this as, you know, yeah, yeah, that's prayer. But you stop and think how wild prayer is? 
that God, and this is how God has decided to do things, right? God doesn't need to do this. This is how God decides to work. This is how God decides to proclaim his gospel, through people's mouths. You know, when God wants to, you know, feed hungry people, what's his standard method? Finding someone to give them food, not just making it appear like manna, you know, which he could and has. If this doesn't increase your desire to prayer, I don't know, pray, I don't know what does. But God says it's that powerful that it actually makes things happen and is a means of, 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 of God's action in the world, our prayers. Stunning statement here. We did a whole, I know, a whole week on prayer talking about this, but I, I, it still amazes me. But he says, number one, through your prayers, and secondly, through the help given by, and actually the real word, it's almost like the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. It's almost like a food word. You know, you're almost like, in the way you're given a provision of food, the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Kind of an amazing statement in itself. And uh, spirit of Jesus Christ, same word, same as the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the term which uh, Luke used a whole lot in Luke and Acts. This is just, this is the Holy Spirit. But here, the idea of the spirit of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is in a real way present with you, provided to the for all you need. He's giving you help. I'm in this jail cell. They think I'm alone. I'm not alone. I, he is with me, and he's given me the strength and the help that I need. And thus, I am confident that through his spirit, God will accomplish his great purposes. It's an amazing statement. And he goes, and I eagerly, and I expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. But I'm going to have sufficient courage so that now, now that now as always christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or death for to me to live is christ and to die is gain amazing statement i and, and and the fact that he'll have sufficient courage tells you one thing is that it's actually a scary situation isn't it this is not some easy thing. He's not taking this in a flippant way. He goes, but I am confident God will give me the courage I need to face what's in front of me. And by life or by death. Because often we think that God's going to work it all out. What does that mean? Oh, he's going to get me out of prison and everything's going to work out terrific. No, he goes, one way in which God may deliver me is into his presence through death. And it didn't happen in this imprisonment, most likely. But you know... How did Paul die? He was beheaded in Rome. How did Peter die? Crucified upside down in Rome. Upside down was his choice, by the way, his request, because he felt like he wasn't worthy of being crucified in the same way as his Savior. Most of the apostles, so many of the leaders died. This is the, you know, this is the history of Christianity, right? Martyrdom. What's the word martyr, right? Where's the, what, is that, what is that word actually? It's the Greek word for witness. They witnessed to their faith via death. And actually, it was people's courage and Christians, you know, being in the being burned, you know, thrown into the in so many different ways. I want to talk about that. That was that was the history of the church. And seeing their faith turn to others, to Jesus. I mean, Tertullian wrote uh, in second century, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It is exploding based on the very faith of these people and their witness in the face of it. And this is the history of Christianity throughout the centuries, not just the first century. Again and again, God's people looked face, looked death right in the eye. 
with courageously confessing his name. They said, you know, you can, you can deny him and spare your life. And they said, I will confess his name. And this is still a you know, voice of the martyrs. This is still happening today. And just one other example of how God even used it. Um, many people here may, uh, if you remember the killing fields in Cambodia in the 70s, you know, when Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge came through and, you know, with the communist ideology and they killed two of six million people, a third of the population. Um, but writing about specifically, there was a, the Christian community was really uniquely targeted in Cambodia for their faith. And uh, it says 90% of Cambodian Christians may have been slaughtered during the reign of Pol Pot. But as human rights advocate Kristen Wright reported, more than 2,000 Khmer Rouge, which is part of the, you know, the, the group that did this, who once followed Pol Pot now follow Christ. Many of them converted after encountering the faith of those they murdered. It's a testimony, says Wright, to the courageous lives of Christians like Haim, who used their final words to witness to the Kimaru's soldiers before being dumped into a mass grave. And this is actually a really interesting story. Um, you know, the LA Times picked this up a couple years ago, writing about it. You know, the Kimaru's guerrillas in the 70s, they took part in the genocide, and now as Christians, they're asking for forgiveness. And to quote the article, it says, in one of these towns, many of the Kimaru's went to a particular town in Cambodia, and it says that area now has 22 churches of various Christian denominations, from the Roman Catholic order to the Marist Brothers to Presbyterianism and Protestantism. This is a considerable density for a predominantly Buddhist country, where the entire Christian community makes up only 2% of the population. Exact figures of converts who were formerly Khmer Rouge are difficult to quantify due to their secrecy about their past to outsiders, but Kong estimated that 40% are now Christians. Said so perhaps the most notorious um, Kimarouge turned Christian is Kangwek Yav, better known by his alias Duch, who oversaw the torture and execution of some 20,000 Cambodians at the notorious prison camp. <laughs> Sentenced to life in prison by the tribunal, Duch was baptized shortly after his wife died in 1995. By the time he was called to stand trial in 2009, he had built a Protestant church in his home village and converted dozens of families. Fairly remarkable. You know, it's hard to imagine that the very people who slaughtered the church were turning to him, turning to Christ in such incredible numbers. The key um, is this idea for each one of those people who died, even confessing their faith, was that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And to embrace that. Can you see the freedom and confidence it gives you to be able to do that? To be able to accept that. To know that nothing can harm you. He goes, to go on living, it would be great. But if I, if I die, it's okay, I'm with him. And this is not, you know, this is not a flippant thing about suffering. All right? It's a key idea, you know, what is it not? It's not that it doesn't hurt, it's not terrifying, it's not hard. None of those things. It's not painful. It's a dismissal of none of those things, but it's a, it's, it, it's a core confidence in the midst of it that I need not fear. The provision of Jesus Christ will be enough to put me through this, that I will have sufficient courage to endure what is before me. You don't need sufficient courage for something you're taking flippantly, by the way. It implies that you need courage. 
And what he's saying is you will have the courage available to you when you set apart Jesus and say, be exalted in my life. Now, many of us, and and he encourages the Philippian church then. He says, guys, now what's happened to me, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Suffering and hardship is normative in the Christian life. And it's here sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. Even as we come to this uh, Palm Sunday, right, they're cheering, right? But there's this this really uh, scary thought because you know all those cheers are going to turn to jeers. And he is going to be, you know, put on the cross. But is it defeated? Is he defeated? No, it was through that suffering, through that difficulty, through that rejection, through the ill motives of those who did it to him, that God accomplished his great purposes of redemption of the world. He goes, have that mind. Know that to be true. That is that pursuit of joy. We need to embrace that. Now, what comes to mind of anyone here? Does anyone here have any situation they can think of where a knock became a boost, where someone's ill motives and difficulties done to them turned for the betterment? I don't know if our church came to anyone's mind. I mean, I was just like, get out of here. I'm reading this thing going, if you don't have a testimony of that already... You know, do you know, uh, I was looking at Daniel, three or four years ago, the elders, you know what their big problem was? That they discovered when they were doing, uh, calling in these uh, consultants, uh, Jim Singleton, that they're talking to the elders, what's our big need? It actually wasn't denominational issues. It was that, how do we bring the church back to life? You know, it, it's, it's, it's receded, we got this huge, you know, building, we're going down, we've been suffering with denominational discernment for years, it's sucking the life out of us. How will we come back to life? That was the cry of that. Guess what? We came back to life. You know, and we're reinvigorated, but not through the pathway any of us would have chosen, right? Not what you wanted, and in no way it justifies or thinks that everything's wonderful. But when you set apart to Christ, he can do his powerful work through it. That even the, the greatest of, you know, being things that you go, man, they're going to, I mean, you said, here's what we really need to have. We need to have all of our funds taken away. We need to be tossed out of the building with nothing. That's what we really need. You know, and that's our game plan. This is what we think would be the best thing for us. No, no one wants that. And, and we don't belittle it by saying, oh, that, didn't, that was okay. You don't have to do that. But that God accomplishes purposes through it is something each one of us need to embrace in our life because that is a principle you need to take and stick right here because you're going to need it in your life. You're going to have loads of times in your life when you're going to need courage and you're going to need strength. And the key is not that every bad situation suddenly comes out hunky-dory and it's happily ever after, but a life set apart to Jesus Christ. Nothing can thwart. You know, I don't know the situations where it's hard for you. I don't know if it's being at work 
in a hostile you know, situation where you're afraid to speak about Jesus or whatever. And, and, and let me say that, by the way, there's a lot of, uh, in work, there's a lot of times it's not appropriate to speak about Jesus. You know, if you're a teacher in a public school, it's probably not best to have an altar call with your children. <laughs> you know, there's an appropriateness of the different situations. But don't kid yourself if appropriateness is the only thing that makes you be silent. And speak, you know, speak about who you, you know, who you are and what you believe. And a lot of times we're scared of the circumstances. What will happen if I do say what I really believe in my community, in my school, and other places? Yeah, and, and this, this is no way saying, oh, it'll all turn out well. No, it says it can turn out bad, but nothing can actually harm you, and God's purposes will be accomplished beyond what you think. That's really the assurance, isn't it? He says, and you can walk with this confidence going forward that you will have the courage you need and you'll be able to endure, and most importantly, God will be exalted through it. The gospel will go forth. I mean, I think forth that little group in Brandeis, right? Little group, and I think if you ask, the, you know, after that, I think they were more terrified to speak than anything. Oh, oh my, look what happened. But because of that courage, little tiny group. Actually, it was even one person who was really courageous in that group. The entire campus was talking about it. The entire region of New England, the Jewish community, was reading about not just this group, but reading about actual quotations of the gospel and interacting with it with a way they probably did not have an opportunity to for years on either side. Don't underestimate what God can accomplish through someone who is set apart to him. He says that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. That's the cry. Lord, be exalted in my life. Let me set apart, sanctify Christ as Lord in all I say and do. And Lord, you accomplish your purposes. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it's hard to believe that we need to, uh, if we want to pursue the joy that you want to give us. Lord, it's hard to think that it uh, will mean pursuing joy in the midst of suffering and difficulty. And Lord, you consider it a glorious thing to share in the sufferings of Christ, Lord, but we confess that it scares us, Lord. Suffering scares us, hardship scares us, opposition scares us. But Lord, we pray that you will give us the courage we need to be the people you need us to be. To believe, Lord, that you can be glorified and magnified in our lives. Ah, oh, Lord, use this church, Lord, to magnify your name. Use our lives to be glorified. Let's just take a moment in quiet if there's something you need to bring to the Lord now. Maybe there's some situation coming up and there's some fear. Thank you, Lord, that you know our weaknesses. Oh, Father. Forgive us, cleanse us, and give us the strength. Give us the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ we need. We can walk courageously unashamed.
to that place you have set before us. In the name of Jesus, I pray.